This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Contact them for all your Disney-related travel needs. Send them an email at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com, and they'll be happy to send you to the most magical vacation destination in the world. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. How you doing today, George? Doing okay. Nice hot day. Almost 82. What? Almost, almost insufferable. I think we kind of switched today because it's like 60-something here in Southern California. Yeah. Over the weekend, it was in the low 70s. It was beautiful. I, so. Are you sure our climates didn't change by accident? It could have been some weird global phenomenon of some sort. You know, I heard Al Gore talking about stuff like that back <laughs> the in the internet? 90s. Yeah, the internet. I heard, I heard he invented it in podcasting. <laughs> invented Al Gore podcasting. invented podcasting. You heard it here first on Communicore Weekly. The greatest Al Gore show. <laughs> well, sad how well that worked. That's going to be a theme Sitting episode at some point, I guarantee you. And we apologize in advance. It'll, it'll, it'll be when we look at the vice president. The Hall of Vice Presidents. The Hall of Vice Presidents. Yes. You hear, you hear that, Disney? Presidents. Or some other theme park? Get on that. <laughs> some some second-rate theme if, park. Do the Hall of Vice Presidents. If I don't see a Hall of Vice Presidents at, I don't know, I don't even know a theme park it would be good at, but I need to see one within the next 10 years. So somebody get on that, please. I would yeah. very much appreciate it. We, we should probably go to the segment. I'm okay with that. Let's do that. It's time for Disney History. Cinderella Castle, Spaceship Earth, and now, since that dumb hat is gone once again, the Grauman's Chinese Theater. All of these structures are the icons that represent the various Walt Disney World theme parks. And back in 1989, when Imagineers were thinking of their fourth magnificent gates for Walt Disney World, Disney Animal Kingdom, uh, they knew this new park would also need an icon to represent it to the world. But what would this full day fourth park icon be? That's not the most loaded paragraph we've ever had on this show. It's the most um, truthful. <laughs> okay, so back to the park. They, uh, the Imagineers, they needed an icon that would show off the message of the animal kingdom with a single glance. And the tree of life was the obvious answer. This gigantic tree would represent the abundant plant life of our world. And the many animals carved into its bark would symbolize the vast array of animals that call our planet their home. However... The Tree of Life did not start out as the mighty structure that it would eventually become. Now, early designs called for a tree about 50 feet high that would kind of act as a playground for children. And as ideas for the tree began to evolve and grow, a viewing platform was also envisioned within its branches where, you know, guests could kind of survey Safari Village, which is now known as Discovery Island, and everything beyond it. Basically, everything the light touches. Um, so in, in these early concept drawings, you can see people climbing up into the Tree of Life, kind of like the, uh, the Swiss Family Robinson, but with less uh, Swiss Capulca going on in the background. So I, was, I, I could see Mufasa going, son, everything that the humidity touches <laughs> will someday be yours. So, not that I'm complaining. 
Okay, so as the tree continued to grow in concept, so did the Imagineer's ideas. One early plan called for a fine dining location to be housed beneath the tree called Roots Restaurant. Roots, not Guru's, because that was still a little bit down the road. Yes. Um, they had a they had a theme. The Tree of Life is Groot. Well, now they should. Or kind of. Okay. Anyway, okay. So obviously, this show was abandoned, uh, or the idea for the restaurant was abandoned in favor of a theatrical show. However, placing a restaurant or a theater beneath such a large structure would create engineering problems. The tree needed to withstand hurricane force winds, and having a large room built directly under the tree's trunk would make constructing a proper foundation difficult. The idea for the Tree of Life came to a standstill until a solution could be found. Now, an answer to the problem came from an educational television program about offshore oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. And upon seeing the types of structures used in uh, this kind of endeavor, Imagineers knew what would have to be done to make the Tree of Life work. So a free-span oil drilling platform offered a wide base, large enough to house a good-sized room, a narrow center section for the tree's trunk, and an expanding top section uh, capable of supporting all the branches. Yes, yeah, so I was wondering if they were going to make it an offshore park icon, like off the coast of like Tampa or something like that. <laughs> that we kind of are you talking about their fifth gate, the uh, the oil drill park, <laughs> the oil drill park, Walt, Walt Disney's magical world of oil. <laughs> Yes, so though the idea came from oil drilling, the final base was not an offshore drilling platform. It was a custom preliminary design made by a contractor who used a homegrown 3D modeling program to complete the engineering and to ensure it could all be accurately cut, fit, welded, and tested. The pieces were, of course, tested, pre-fit together, and then trucked from Houston to Orlando so it could be erected on site. Now, the next problem they had to tackle were the branches. So, in order to withstand winds in excess of 74 miles an hour, as you often do in Florida, uh, it was believed that the limbs would need to be made out of a rigid, non-flexible material, kind of like steel. And in addition, in order to make the project cost-effective, the branches would need to be mass-produced. And this would dictate that the limbs of equal size kind of be identical shape. However, contrary to popular belief, uniformity is not actually found in nature. Everything is different. So, when the wireframe uh, drawings and artist renderings were completed, the tree kind of resembled an inflexible geodesic dome closer to Spaceship Earth more than this glorious tree icon. So, to solve these problems, the Imagineers first developed a flexible injection-molded fiberglass to create the branches. These would range in size from, you know, two feet in circumference at the trunk of the tree to two inches uh, where the leaves would attach at the end. And since the material was flexible, the limbs would move in the wind just like a real tree. We call that Disney magic, folks. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> Boy, our budget is so high. Anyway, <laughs> next, uh, <laughs> next, they needed a way to attach identical branches in a random pattern. Uh, that was what was needed. So, to resolve this problem, 32 balls were created and secured to the tree, and from each ball, one or two secondary branches could be attached in various positions, and special expansion joints uh, allow the secondary limbs to move when a breeze passes through them. 
and from these branches, smore, smaller uh, Tateri uh, bows could be attached, uh, twisted, and turned to create a more natural shape of a tree. And in some cases, branches could be emitted from a standard socket in an effort to create a more kind of chaotic appearance of the tree. So when it was completed, the Tree of Life had 12 primary branches, 45 secondary branches, 756 uh, tertiary branches, and 7,891 uh, 7, end branches. That's a lot of branches. Like, yes, it is. way to make it count. The tree stands 145 feet tall and is 165 feet across. And it's also interesting to note that the final design and shape of the Tree of Life was based on a very specific bonsai tree the Imagineers discovered at a very early Epcot uh, Flower and Garden Festival. So the Imagineers worked with outside firms to develop a natural-looking leaf that would withstand wind, heat, cold, and moisture, or humidity. In addition, the leaves could not be allowed to fade in the sun, so they also needed to resist the effects of ultraviolet light. In the end, hundred wow that's it is weird when we see numbers we, yeah, don't we get do so numbers thrown off by numbers or weekly wow uh 102,583 leaves that's a lot um each over a foot long were created and attached to the tree of life they come in five shades of green and they also rustle in the wind the branches and leaves were assembled on the ground and then lifted by crane into place which the crane is the official state bird of Walt Disney World. That is true. It most definitely so, is. Always it's always there. hanging out by the, the Cinderella Castle also. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, of course, the real fascination of the Tree of Life is not the tree, but the th over 320 animals that are carved into its trunk. And to create this work of art, an international team of artists was assembled, kind of like the Avengers. Ooh, and yeah. Those not already a part of the Disney team all had their own studios and had proven themselves in various forms of media in, in, you know, in advance of this, taking on this project. So the tree's skin began as a half-inch-to-the-foot model that featured no animals. This model only duplicated a rough approximation of what the Imagineers wanted to recreate in real life. The model was then cut into 4-inch-by-4-inch sections. Each section was then scored in 1-inch intervals. A stylus was run along the scoring and the information recorded into a computer. This data was next sent to a rebar bending machine that recreated this shape in actual size. Finally, the rebar was attached piece by piece to the trunk of the tree and welded into place. The attachment of the rebar took 12 weeks to complete. Next, the rebar was covered with a metal lath, a kind of chicken wire type material, and this would act as a skin to which the concrete would be applied. And scaffolding, about six feet wide, circled the tree on multiple levels, and this kind of provided the artists with a place to work their magic. The animals were actually carved out of a special plaster-like cement that was applied at a depth of uh, two to four inches over the first layer of concrete. And the artists worked from the top down, and each could compete approximately a six to eight square foot area within the six uh, to seven hours the concrete was soft enough to sculpt. And that roughly equates to the size of one average size animal. So coloring and texture was also a consideration. Various shades of browns and greens were used to create shadows and depth. When the painting was done, a final coat of polyurethane was added to shield the figures from harmful ultraviolet rays, which would, you know, fade the paint. For texture, three types of tree bark were emulated when created the various animals, uh, banyan, oak, and cedar. Samples of each were kept nearby for the artists to kind of look at and study. And, for example, the stripes of the tiger re uh, resembled the, the banyan bark, while the octopus, uh, octopus's skin is modeled on an oak uh, tree. 
Now, no particular scale was used when adding the animals to the tree. For, for example, there is an ant as large as an ape's face elsewhere on the tree, and that'd be scary. Yeah, that is a big um, ant. Yeah, or a small ape. That's a fair point. They didn't say which was which. Tough, but mm. fair. Mm. Okay, so yet, yet despite the disregard to size, the animals all seem to blend together seamlessly. It took a team of 10 artists and three Imagineers working full time for 12 months to complete the carvings. In all, the Tree of Life took over two years from the beginning of, of construction to its finished beauty. Now, the Tree of Life is a magnificent uh, structure, and I never get tired of looking at it and know that it's not what makes it a full-day park. Um, many people often wonder if the tree is real, which to me is the sign of a perfect Disney magic working correctly, and it's just a gorgeous piece of art, and I love it, and full-day park, that's it. Okay, well, we would like to know what you guys think about the Tree of Life, or if you had any experiences with it, or just want to uh, rhapsodize about your favorite gigantic tree. Sure. Maybe? Yeah, that'll work. Okay. Or if you want to call agree us. with me. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> call us on the Communicore Weekly Hotline at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah. It's George's Book of the Week. How do I love Disneyland? Let me count the ways. No, guys, sorry, this is not the Communicore Weekly Poetry Hour. I was really waiting for, like, the Roger Rabbit continuation of that. <laughs> one, one thousand. Two, one thousand. Oh, speaking of Roger Rabbit, sup, Corey? <laughs> um, Nailed it. We got to. So, okay, so we're not we're not looking at the um, any famous sonnets and changing them to suit our Disney needs, but we are here to review Chris Strader's latest book, The Disneyland Book of Lists. And uh, I did review Strader's other book, The Disneyland Encyclopedia, and that book from 2012 quickly became an indispensable title that I refer to often. Yes. And it made it made my list of the top 10 Disneyland books, because I can make my own list as well, and it was uh, one of my favorite books of the year in 2012. So this book, right off the bat, has got to be good, right? i got to be right. honest with you. I have to be. I usually find these list <laughs> things really hokey. Um, especially now on the internet, because like every day I feel like yeah. BuzzFeed has like 21 things you need to know before you turn 35. Like, don't tell me what I need to know, BuzzFeed. I'm doing fine on my own. Um, but that's are you uh, tough but are fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bit apprehensive when uh, Chris's book came, but thankfully though, I was really pleasantly surprised by. It. I mean, I think he did an excellent job. Yeah. So a little bit of technical details. Uh, he offers the reader, which would be us over 250 lists that look at everything imaginable about Disneyland. And it's it's really amazing to think that someone could come up with 250 lists about our beloved theme park. I could barely but, come up with one. <laughs> oh, I, I was going to just go random about bathrooms or <laughs> churros or something like that, but that's okay. Um, the, the, the lists that Strader has made uh, are mostly based in fact, uh, but he'll throw in a few that reflect his own opinions. But you know, that's sort of you know even as he stated, that's what a a curated list of lists is all about. Yeah, yeah. So there are twelve. I mean, I don't want to know if I call them chapters per se. I'll call them twelve lists of lists in the book, perhaps. 
Um, with all the lists, you know, relating to whatever the theme of that chapter, quote-unquote, is. Um, you know, there's lists about Walt himself, uh, history of the park, geography, shops, pop culture, and, you know, more, they really round out the book and they give it a very overall entertaining, yet very informative feel. Yeah, I, I found the lists very accessible and and very intriguing. It re- they really kept me reading. I mean, for one, who doesn't want to know the 16 splendid Disney restrooms? Uh, we all do. The approximate speed of 15 Disneyland attractions. And I love this one. 13 Disneyland-related sentences and phrases that are 13 words long. I mean, that's just... That's brilliant. Yeah, who thinks of that? Uh, and instead of doing a traditional about the author bio at the end of the book, he includes a list about himself, which is actually really funny. Yeah. Really, really funny. Yes, it is. Um, you know, that said, it's this is not a book that you sit down and read in big chunks. It's not like, uh, you know, a novel or a research book. But, I mean, you could, obviously, but it's definitely something you can sit down and, and you read, you know, a couple of lists here and there, and they're fun and entertaining, and you can come back to later on. And, you know, it's a nice, easy read, and I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, where else am I going to find, you know, the locations of where an owl is hiding so I can warn Mickey to stay away from his uh, natural predator all over Disneyland? Yeah, I was wondering, that's probably not the you know what the intention chris had when he wrote the book probably not especially i'm thinking an owl big enough to take away mickey mouse that is a gigantic owl that i do not want to meet in a dark corner anywhere yeah not at all so okay well our what was that an owl oh i guess i don't know yeah i thought you hooted or somebody hooted it was me okay (laughs) yeah our effects i didn't think they gotten that much better sorry anyway clearly did it yeah well, um, let's jump back into the book. Uh, the Disneyland Book of Lists enjoys a good joke or two, not unlike two really good-looking podcast hosts that you might know, and still retains its authority, just like us as well, because people will respect our authority. Let's see what you're doing here, and I like it. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> yes, but like us, it's obvious when Strader is enjoying himself, but you can really rest assured that he has checked out every fact and list for accuracy. And... One of my favorite lines from the book, page 14, it says, and this is a quote, Disneyland's first nationally televised list, in quotes, came on July 17, 1955, during the opening day festivities. After christening the Mark Twain, actress Irene Dunn quickly yelled, We're listing! When she noticed that the overloaded (laughs) boat was starting to tilt to one side. And that, my friends, is how you research an awesome Disney book. I think that's wonderful. Also, I'm going to throw something out here right now, and I'm totally going to throw George off, but we're going to make our own list right this second. And we're going to list the top five things uh, other than eating that you can do with a churro. (laughs) Go. Uh, Lead a tour group around with it. Ooh, good one. Uh, Have a lightsaber battle. Oh, that's even good, because then you got sugar flying into your enemy's eyes. Heck yes. When it happens. Um... Use it to reach outside the sphere of no touching on rides. Ooh, you know, okay. Like the Imagineers design, so you can you can hit like the animatronics. I'll take that. Stuff. I'll take okay. that. Okay. okay. Um, use it to knock somebody's hat off when they're standing in front of you when you're trying to watch the fireworks. <laughs> okay. Along the same vein, you can use it to knock their iPad down when they're taking photos Ooh. with their iPad. <laughs> Nailed it. That's five. That that was a lot easier than I thought it was gonna be. That was really scary. I got very frightened when you brought that up. Um, it worked out we well. Also, we, we made the uh, Book of the Week 
much longer than it needed to be. <laughs> That's true. That's a fair point. But it was fun. Much yes, like was. the book. Okay, so speaking of lists, uh, I think this book is definitely going to make my top uh, books of the year list. Boy, I could have said that a little more awkwardly. It would have been even better. Uh, but this is the Disneyland Book of Lists by Chris Strotter. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 Decker Review. So apparently there was some major blockbuster film that was released and like made like $191 million. I almost said billion. I felt like Dr. Evil. Um, this is not the new Austin Powers, but the Marvel's Age of Ultron uh, Avengers. Sorry. Wow. I'm so excited. I can't even get he the can't title. can't even get it right. I was, well, I was, we were talking about Scarlett Johansson before the segment. So that's, that's all I'm true. thinking about. Right that's now. a fair point. Yeah. Anyways, so the movie's out. We know it's been out for about a week since uh, this review is coming up. Um, and just go see it. That's it. Everyone go That's home. It. We're done. Thank you. End the review. Um, <laughs> um, where, did you see it re- like in a regular theater, you said? Yes, we saw it in a regular theater. My, my son can't really do 3D very well. Um, <laughs> neither in real life. You should see him drive. <laughs> bum, bum, Jing. But uh, he won't listen to the show. So, it so it's matter. okay. It's okay. Yeah, we saw it in a regular theater uh, early Saturday morning. It was about half full. Um, ate too much popcorn. Drank too much soda. It was awesome. Um, yeah, I really wanted to see it in IMAX, and then I realized they were only playing it in 3D in IMAX. And mm. I really don't like 3D to begin with, but I, I it was totally worth it for this movie. I mean, it was fantastic. And I know, you know, reading some reviews after the fact, a lot of people were saying, yeah, it was great, but I liked <laughs> the first one better, and I disagree. Mm. I think this one is... Mm. The Empire Strikes Back, essentially. Um, yeah. It was more comic booky. I mean, it laid all this groundwork for upcoming Marvel yeah. stuff. I mean, it was great. Yeah, and I, I, the one thing I noticed, and we talked about a little bit through texting, was this movie was dark. Uh, I mean, like, seriously, dark. Yes, yes, almost yes. the whole time, and it wasn't almost till the end that a lot of light comes in. It did remind me, so that means the Marvel's um, Avengers 3 is going to have Ewoks in it? Um, Sure. Okay, no, okay. God, I hope not. But yeah, it was dark. Um, the first one was nonstop. They didn't even let you breathe during the jokes. Yeah. I mean, they just kept throwing stuff at you. I mean, that perfect Joss Whedon writing. This one had a little bit of a slower pace, not in a bad way, but it gave time for some more speechifying, putting out some backstory. Character learning, development. Yes, learning a lot more about the characters. I mean, you know, it hit me afterwards. This was pretty much Hawkeye's film. Yeah, and you, yeah. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of bummed about how he was treated in the first Avengers. Mm-hmm. And I love, yeah. you know, we won't spoil, but his story that they gave him here, yeah. like, it made it his movie to me. And they, they gave him a really big part, and I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, the, the action scenes, the, the fights were absolutely fantastic. Oh, the set pieces were incredible. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. It's just, it, it's hard to explain the Hulkbuster fighting the Hulk. And, you know, was intense. one thing I've noticed in this more than any other Marvel movie is, because, you know, the Avengers were very concerned about, A, stopping the threat, but also they were concerned about, oh, we need to save the civilians, too. Like, you don't really see yes, that a lot in the yes. other movies, but there was a lot yes. of, you know, okay, let's get these people out of here so we can make sure they're safe and then fight this bad guy at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. I, like to me, that made it much more comic booky and, I guess, tr- more true to the source material. Um, I think so. I think so. I, um, James Spader, it, man. Oh, he, he made is, Ultron <laughs> frightening and hilarious at the same time. And believable. And believable. And 
he was almost the perfect anti-hero. You, you were rooting for him on some level. Yes. And it made it very difficult to deal with some of what happens in the film. But uh, a good friend of ours, whose name rhymes with Macquarie, you know, was upset that the, his lips moved. And I thought, well, it really, he really had a lot of uh, human characteristics. Yes. Even though he was a robot, otherwise it wouldn't have been believable. You needed to have that feeling that he's a real character. I, and I man, agree. those special effects were incredible. Story was incredible. Yes, I agree. I really, not much else we say, but yes, it was fantastic. A different movie from the first Marvels. Absolutely. The first Avenger movie. I keep saying the Marvels. I'm the just Marvels. tied up into it. But like you said, lays the groundwork. I mean, we've got the Inhumans. We've got the Civil War. Yeah, they dropped a lot of names coming. and stuff for upcoming things. We got I was, to go to Wakanda. Yeah, which was great. Hello, that which was is awesome. awesome. Um, I do have to mention this though, because I see a lot of backlash online about the Scarlett Johansson storyline as Black Widow, yeah. and how a lot of people were upset about her big reveal, quote unquote, about her her backstory, and you know. Some people were saying that she oh, was, yeah. you know, regla- you know, she was, became a love interest and and who needed saving and nothing else. And you know, I kind of disagreed. I mean, we you can know from the trailer, even if you haven't seen the film already, like her and Bruce Banner kind of have this thing going on. And yeah. I didn't think they made her the love interest that needed saving. I think they made Banner the love yeah. interest that needed saving. I, I thought that was brilliant. And to me, mm-hmm. yeah, she didn't get a whole heck of a lot of screen time, um, but her backstory I thought was very well done they made Bruce kind of the damsel in distress and uh, the Black Widow was the one that kind of had to save him and I, I loved mm-hmm. it I want to see more of their relationship develop in the future yeah which leads me to um, a personal request to Kevin Feige personally we are behind the 10 film arc that will make up a Black Widow film franchise yes totally behind it we'll do whatever needs to be done if it's bringing you coffee or waxing your car we're okay with it we can help crowdsource money somehow i mean i'm mm-hmm. okay with that too i and it, seriously honestly we're how many films into the marvel cinematic universe and you know uh, captain marvel is going to be the first female driven oh. yeah. uh yeah. you know marvel film i really think there needs to be more i mean scarlett johansson i think the black widow character needs to have its own film um not just because we love scarlett johansson of course that's part of the reason too but i think the character is very yeah. strong like she she basically is the lead female character in the marvel cinematic oh, universe totally without totally. a doubt yeah, um, totally i mean so. obviously lead female characters work on tv like the agent carter and agents of shield mm-hmm. um so i really think she deserves her own flick at some point in time yes please and thank you I think so. So I guess uh, big gigantic thumbs up from both of us. Big gigantic Hulk thumbs up. Go see it. Sometimes you might see it. Sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. So this week's go is more of a long-term payoff and one thing you need to watch a lot of movies for. You know, in the 60-second review that you literally just listened to, hopefully, about uh, The Avengers Age of Ultron, I said that it basically is, to me, their version of The Empire Strikes Back of the Marvel films. And I'm not alone, because uh, Kevin Feige, uh, the president of Marvel Studios, is a massive Star Wars fan. And he has said recently that he feels like the Phase 2 of the Marvel films overall kind of is like their Empire Strikes Back. And to kind of further this connection even more, well, remember in Empire Strikes Back when Luke has his hand cut off uh, by Darth Vader? I know, sorry. Spoiler. 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 (laughs) Well, in every Marvel Phase 2 film, someone loses an arm or a hand. 
So in Iron Man 3, Iron Man slices off uh, Killian's arm during the final fight sequence. Uh, in Thor The Dark World, Loki appears to cut off Thor's hand in an illusion, not a magic trick, an illusion. Mm, it's an illusion, Michael. In Captain America The Winter Soldier, uh, Bucky is revealed to have lost his arm during the fall off the train. In Guardians of the Gal Galaxy, Gamora chops off Groot's arms for the first time they meet. And Avengers Age of Ultron, well, spoiler, but Ulysses Claw gets his arm ripped off by Ultron. <laughs> and with Ant-Man, the final Phase 2 film coming this summer, kind of have to keep an eye out to see who's going to lose an arm there. I'm not entirely sure who it's going to uh, be. Somebody could lose six arms. They could because they are an ant. They are an ant. So we'll wow. have to report back on that one when it happens. But yes, go back and, and watch that where everybody is just losing their arms and Man, hands. That, that's and like a 12-hour five-legged goat. Hey, man, if you got the time. Oh, I know. I, I'm going to do that in a minute. Anyway, no, you're not. That's 12 hours. I, I know. Oh, we got to... I gotta sleep. go to work and sleep and everything else. So that's okay. Your boss won't care, guys. Just tell him we said it was cool. No, sorry, I can't come into work today. I gotta watch twelve hours of Marvel films to see people's hands and arms get cut off. That's, that's important. No well, big deal. Speaking of important, let's jump over to this week's prize winner. I'm so glad you didn't say. Speaking of arms coming off. <laughs> Ow! This week's um, prize winner of the year or so millionaires. I can't, oh my god, I totally... You're a million or so limited time, cadets. We both kept trying to say it. I can't yell at you for that anymore, because that is the first time I messed it up. I am so sorry. Okay, so in order to enter the prize, just uh, the prize giveaway, which we're going weekly until the end of season four this year, you just need to send an email to communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, your address, obviously, so we can mail you something, and your birthday because we're sending out other things as well. Yes. And we've given out a ton of prizes so far to some very happy cadets. Yes, we and have. There's a few we haven't, we haven't heard from, but we hope they're happy. We, well, we hope they're happy, period. But there's um, only a few, so anyway. But this week's <laughs> prize. So this week's prize is a Disney Cruise Line prize pack uh, sponsored yet again by Fairy Godmother Travel, and it is a from the Fantasy uh, Cruise Ship inaugural Vinylmation uh, set. So thank you to Fairy Godmother Travel for sponsoring this, uh, this week's prize. And the winner... This week is Amantha R. from Anaheim, California. Yay! Hooray! Congratulations, Amantha. Uh, we will actually, Miss Teresa Corey from Fairy Godmother Travel will be sending you your prize very shortly. And when I told her that you were the winner, she thought it was funny because she saw you this past weekend. Oh, wow. That's Nailed almost it. odd. Nailed Pretty it. impressive. Nailed it. Pretty impressive. So, okay. Well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yes, please leave us a comment on wherever you're watching or listening to the show, whether it's iTunes or YouTube or wherever. Let us know what, what you think. Yep. And email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com, you know, just to say hey or to enter the contest. Anyway. And also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. Yep, follow us on Twitter and Instagram because we're invading all social networks except Pinterest. We don't understand Pinterest. I don't get that one. Yeah, I'm at Imaginerding and he's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, give us a call on the Communicoidly Goat line at 424-785-4628 and let us know how Pinterest works. <laughs> Please. Uh, don't forget you can visit CommunicoreWeekly.com, which has been redesigned by Mr. Kevin Lake. We love it. Thank you, Cadet Kevin. Um, but we've also got the new... Communistore up. It's communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com, and we've got some awesome shirts there. Yes, we do. Faster turnaround time, a little cheaper prices, so definitely check them out. And kid sizes, finally. Yay. Finally. 
Uh, also, be sure to send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And I just found all the cadet membership cards and stickers, so I will be sending the, the backlog <laughs> out this week, I promise. <laughs> That's right, the great move of how many miles was it? Uh, 2.57. Wow, that's terrible. Um, you can always support us on Patreon.com. We would love your support. Just visit Patreon.com slash Weekly. So for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>